This is Guns and Butter. Corporations are very clever. They will co-opt anybody regardless of race, color, creed, or sexual preference. That's how expedient and opportunistic. As long as people go along with their subjugation of civic values, democracy, health, safety, posterity, and subordinate these civic values to corporate commercial interests like NAFTA, WTO. When Obama, I mean, Obama's African-American. I know a lot of people say, it's a good thing, finally, African-American becomes president. What does that mean for African-Americans? Is this just a career change? You know, they say to me, oh, you're, you're really tough on Barack Obama. You say he talks white to the white corporate power structure. I say, is, is, there, anything, is there anything strange about that? I mean, look at him. Is he taking him on? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Ralph Nader and Matt Gonzalez. Today's show, Nader Gonzalez, 2008. Ralph Nader is a consumer advocate, lawyer, author, and has been named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential Americans in the 20th century. His groups were instrumental in enacting the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the Safe Drinking Water Act. The Nader Gonzalez 2008 presidential campaign made a swing through Northern California on August 3rd. I caught up with them at the Community Center in Sebastopol, California. We begin with vice presidential candidate Matt Gonzalez. Matt Gonzalez is the former president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He is best known for having led the effort to implement instant runoff voting. In 2003, despite being outspent 8-1, to Gonzalez came in within a few percentage points of being elected mayor of San Francisco. Since leaving office, Gonzalez has been practicing civil rights law in San Francisco. Matt Gonzalez. Let me just uh, start out by saying I was with Ralph uh, in uh, Austin, Texas recently. I'm from South Texas, so it's a community that I, that I know well. I have a lot of friends there, and it's a progressive community. It was very interesting to see that the weekly uh, newspaper sort of put an ad about our appearance, and they said, well, they, they wrote something like, maybe Ralph will apologize for the last eight years. And... You know, I thought, it, I thought it was amusing, sort of, but then I, I started getting angry about it. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second, who should be apologizing? Who's voted for this war? Who voted for the Patriot Act? Who supports all these appropriations? Who's supporting the FISA bill? I mean, at some point, uh, there has to be uh, responsibility taken for these positions and this idea that it all belongs at the feet of Ralph Nader is just so absurd that it's insulting to our intelligence. The war in Iraq is probably one of the ugliest things we've ever engaged in. Nancy Pelosi told us, elect me the speaker and I'll get you out of the war. Well, I want you to know when she was uh, not the speaker, we put $116 billion into the war. She became the speaker January of 2007 that amount went up by $50 billion. 
$50 billion more from 116 to 165. This year, it went up to 189. So another 20 billion on top of that. What's wrong with our country? What's wrong with our opposition party that they can, with a straight face, tell you that the problem with this country is that candidates that hold views different than the ones that they hold are somehow not allowed to engage in the democratic process and not allowed to get out there and try and get our ideas out. Um, Ralph Nader and I are fighting to end the war in Iraq. We want single-payer health care. We want to reform the Taft-Hartley law that has really taken the strength out of labor that's essentially outlawed general strikes, jurisdictional strikes, secondary boycotts, all kinds of things the labor movement can't do anymore. Now, when I think about what was the problem in 2000, um, I'm just awestruck by the fact that so little has been done to cure the problem that we have in this democracy. Two things happened. We let somebody get announced and, and declared the President of the United States who got less votes than one of the other candidates. And we let somebody be declared the winner who didn't even have a majority of the vote. Now, we're all intelligent people. We can figure out um, how we would fix this problem. We would mandate that the winner have to get over 50% of the vote. That would be that. I mean, how complicated is that? How is it that all the brain power in the Democratic and Republican parties can't figure this out? Well, first off, for the Democrats, let me say this. You like to invoke the name Ralph Nader, but you never invoke the name Ross Perot, who won 19% of the vote and elected Bill Clinton president in 1992 with 43% or less of the vote. Clinton got less percentage of the vote than our current president did in 2000 but you never hear about it. So the first thing I want to say is, you know, the, the antiquated line, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There is a reason why these political parties don't want to change the system. It's not because they don't know how. It's that if they were to change the system, the political spectrum would widen. What's possible in this country would widen. And they would rather have arbitrary outcomes and be in power roughly half the time than to fix the problem and really change American democracy. So if they're not willing to change the problem, then aren't we rewarding them when we attack Ralph Nader and Matt Gonzalez and the other candidates out there that are trying to talk about the real issues? Now, it's, it's astounding to me that Barack Obama likes to say, well, you know, to, for his explanation why he can't do the things that need to be done and take the positions that he should take. He likes to say superheroes don't get elected in politics. Well, you know, there are no superheroes in the Canadian legislature that passed health care for their citizens. The legislators that vote against the Patriot Act are not superheroes. They're human beings like we are who believe in due process and equal protection and want a citizenry that isn't at the you know, whim of governmental invasion of uh, privacy. That's, 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 it's, it's fundamental. There's a whole group of people out there that are trying to make apologies for the Democratic nominee saying, well, he's only moving to the right now that he's secured the nomination. It's not true. It's not true. Barack Obama supported the Republican class action reform law. This was something that David Serrata uh, wrote for the nation and many of their columnists 
made fun of. They said this is a big business bonanza. John Kerry voted against it. Hillary Clinton voted against it. The Democratic uh, nominee uh, has always supported limiting pain and suffering damages in medical malpractice cases, favoring the wealthy in effect, those with good jobs over those with poor ones. He's opposed getting any kind of royalties from the mining of public lands, uh, hard rock minerals on public lands. He voted for the Energy Policy Act in 2005, a, a vote that McCain even opposed in 2005. Mobile Exxon, as we all know, has record profits now of over $40 billion a year. In 2005, they had record profits of over $35 billion a year. And one of the Chicago newspapers, in response to Obama's vote for this thing, pointed out that it was an odd time to be dishing out oil welfare, you know, because we were giving tax breaks and subsidies in greater amounts than we were investing money in alternative energies. This is a candidate that opposes gay marriage. He has come out in response to progressives saying, what are you doing about, what are you talking about with this faith-based initiative stuff? And you know what he does? He scoffs at progressives and says, you have not been listening to me. Well, listen, we are listening to you now. We have listened to you with your FISA vote, with your change on offshore drilling, with your condemnation of a, of a, a Supreme Court opinion related to the death penalty, and you don't deserve our vote. You're not going to get it. And if you give these candidates your vote, you're guaranteeing that the system stays in place. You're guaranteeing that they can just say one thing to you and, and, and change their mind afterwards. One of the most notorious recent things that Obama said that just is astounding relates to NAFTA. First off, he's campaigning in the primary, and he's saying to everybody, um, he says, I don't think NAFTA has been good for Americans, and I never have. Well, it turns out that an AP writer goes back and looks at his, a guy named Calvin Woodward, uh, goes back and looks at his uh, Senate campaign in 2004, and guess what? At the time, Obama said the U.S. should pursue more deals such as NAFTA and argued that his opponent's call for tariffs would spark a trade war. Okay, so now he's against NAFTA. Okay, he's in a tight race with Hillary Clinton. He's against NAFTA now. Maybe he's figured out that NAFTA has created a scenario where we've displaced millions of Mexican workers caused a migration to the north because we're subsidizing uh, corn, for instance, dumping it in Mexican markets and ruining their agricultural system. What would you do in that situation? So now he tells, you know, he's in a fight with Clinton over who's against NAFTA more. He wins the nomination, in effect, and he gets interviewed by a writer for Fortune magazine, June 18th, 08, Nina Easton, Washington editor, asking him, what about, what, what about NAFTA? You said that you would invoke the six-month clause to, to unilaterally get out of it. He says, well, you know, sometimes during campaigns, the rhetoric gets overheated and amplified. Uh, so he went from calling it devastating and a big mistake to it's just rhetoric. And that's what we're supposed to buy into. We're supposed to buy into political rhetoric because we're not allowed to have better candidates we're not allowed to have candidates that are saying, come on, we can have a better country. We can, we can change this around. The Democrats, uh, you know, if voting for 
complacency and capitulation and appeasement worked, I would advocate it. It's not working. It's, it's just not working. And notice they tell us, well, if we can just have this, we'll win. If we can just have this next thing, we'll change everything. I love how these U.S. senators run around and say, well, if I were president, the home mortgage crisis wouldn't have happened and the, the oil prices wouldn't be what they are. You've been in the United States Senate. What the hell have you been doing there? Why do we have to elect you to the, give you a promotion when you're asleep on the job, right? Now, you counter that. You counter that with Ralph Nader's history of achieving legislative accomplishments as an outsider. How does his record match up against Senator McCain and Senator Obama, right? I mean, Freedom of Information Act, clean air, clean water, you know, all the automotive work, all the consumer protection work, a, a lifetime of trying to wake up the American public to stand up and fight back and not to take this anymore, right? Imagine what it is to go into a progressive town and have a progressive publication say, maybe they'll apologize for the last eight years. It's really gross. It's not the way to treat Americans participating in a democracy, trying to tell people, come on, let's, let's try to fix this. I want to... I, I want to just close by making reference to the historical examples that I think are important to keep in mind. There were candidates in the past that people said, don't vote for them, you're throwing your vote away if you vote for them. You know, people like Eugene Debs, who ran for president a number of times, and you know, he thought we should have the 40-hour work week, you know? He thought women should be allowed to vote. Imagine that, the radical concept that women were, were advanced enough intellectually and mature enough that they could vote. This was actually a discussion in our society, and it was Eugene Debs that was saying yes, and maybe he got 6% of the vote. The best he ever did was 6%. So if you had lived in that time and somebody had said, don't vote for, for Eugene Debs, you're throwing your vote away, you know, what would you have said to them? Now with this historical lens to look back, how do, you, how do we break through things? And, you know, you go even further back. You go to the Liberty Party of the 1840s, James Burney advocating abolition of slavery. He can get 1% of the vote. You're throwing your vote away if you vote for him, apparently. Well, I don't believe that, and I hope that you don't. I think it takes a lot of courage to be someone like Ralph Nader, who uh, is being attacked for standing up in a democracy and trying to articulate views that the other candidates are essentially, uh, you know, throwing away, rejecting, uh, you know. And I think, I think we're at that historical moment where we have to decide, are we going to vote for what we believe in or are we just going to keep buying into rhetoric about hope and change that it's, it's already been proven to us is false? Thank you. You've been listening to Vice Presidential Candidate Matt Gonzalez. Up next, Presidential Candidate Ralph Nader. Today's show, Nader Gonzalez, 2008. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
Thank you. Now you know why this is one of the best areas of the country for us. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Matt. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to run with Matt, not only because he's nearby in San Francisco, but as you know, he was uh, elected uh, to the Board of Supervisors and his colleagues then elected him to be president of the Board of Supervisors and just barely missed becoming mayor. But you'll hear more for sure from Matt Gonzalez in the future. Now, first of all, it's really a pleasure to be in Sebastopol, which uh, one of 90 cities and towns to vote for the impeachment of the criminal recidivists, Bush uh, <laughs> and Cheney. <laughs> and I can see some people here had a hand in this. Um, but, you know, uh, so uh, abusive and uh, criminal is this regime that you can actually have 900 towns and cities. It wouldn't break through. 9,000 wouldn't break through because there's no opposition party in this country. Because the Democrats, who have the majority vote in the House and Senate, uh, refuse to put impeachment on the table of the most multiply impeachable presidency in American history. It isn't even close. I mean, most presidents who get in trouble on impeachment, it's a one-time episode. Watergate, taking cash, Agnew, and, of course, Clinton. Uh, lying about sex under oath, got in trouble with the tort system. These people are recidivists every day, day after day. They've been spying on Americans without judicial approval, systemic torture around the world, which violates even the U.S. Army Field Manual, the FBI procedures, not to mention the Constitution, federal statutes, and the Geneva Conventions. The criminal war of aggression in Iraq, I use the word war, invasion, occupation, destruction of the Iraqi people. Over one million have died. That's a pretty major war crime. That's going on every day. And of course we have the uh, throwing in jail thousands of Americans uh, without charges, denying them habeas corpus over the last six, seven years, many of them Arab Americans. And we have um, the hundreds of signing statements by Bush, more than all presidents before him, where he basically gets a bill that's been passed by Congress, and, and during his signing, he has a statement which says, I, the president, he might as well say King George IV, I, the president, will decide when and under what conditions to comply or not comply. Now, the American Bar Association, very conservative, biggest bar association in the world, sent him three reports in 2005-2006 stating three areas where he's violated the Constitution. They're too, too polite to say these are high crimes and misdemeanors because that only can be said after Congress gets through with its job of impeachment and conviction. But obviously if they say you are systematically violating the Constitution in these important areas, the major bar association is charging high crimes and misdemeanors. So unlike what we ever thought would happen, we have a criminal regime. FISA is a criminal uh, law. You violate FISA, you can go to jail for five years. Bush and Cheney have violated FISA, and the president's not above the law. That's why I stood in front of the White House a few weeks ago at high noon with lots of tourists around and declared 
for 45 minutes the case for the impeachment, resignation, or subsequent January 2009 criminal prosecution of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. And for good measure, some of you may have seen it because it was on C-SPAN for three times. You can get it, it's in the computer. But for good measure, I went up to Kennebunkport and stood across the cove, a few hundred yards from the Bush family compound. Papa Bush was there, actually. He was looking from the cove with a rake. And, uh, and I did the same thing. Now, why is it that the two-party system, which is one of the cleverest systems of political control in the history of the world, they don't smash your door down at 4 a.m. with boots. They don't control people in, uh, you know, concentration camps. They just control their minds. Because the moment people decide that they're not going to spend much of their discretionary time on politics, because, of course, the smartest people are usually cynics, and cynics are fodder for political oligarchs and miscreants, because cynics basically say, I know what's going on. It's all a fraud, this democracy. We know the power is in the hands of the few against the many. Now, what do you say about that golf game? In other words, the cynic drops out. The skeptic goes forward. It's good when you're discussing these things with your friends to make that distinction. Because cynicism is the sophisticated cop-out of people who think they think about politics. And the two-party system, the two-party system, a 220-year-old political prison, winner-take-all, electoral college, duopoly, basically says to voters, you got two choices. You stay home and not vote, or if you want your vote to mean something and you want to be with the winner, you vote for one of the two major party candidates. Otherwise, you are wasting your vote. And you heard Matt say, were those voters in the 19th century who spun off from the Whigs and the Democrats and didn't try to spin the difference between these two parties on slavery, waste their vote? Aren't we glad that enough voters voted for the Liberty Party, at least to put it on the political map? In 1840, or the Women's Suffrage Party, the Populist Party, the Labor Party, the Greenback Party, all these parties, and then Norman Thomas' Socialist Party, Progressive Party, La Follette, Eugene Debs. <laughs> what did they propose? Aha, the blasphemy of their days is the commonplace of our day. They proposed direct election of senators, 40-hour week, progressive income tax, Social Security, Medicare, they proposed labor standards. They proposed regulation of big business. So we have three kinds of voters in this country. One, the hereditary voters who will vote Republican and Democrat, no matter who the nominee is, because their grandparents did. That's a big chunk. Mayor Bloomberg, when he was thinking of running for office, I had a telephone conversation with him, actually just before he was going to announce that he wasn't, on that day, and he said, I've done surveys and polls all over the country. Here's my conclusion. 15% uh, of the Republicans would vote for the Republican nominee if the Republican nominee was Leon Trotsky. 
And 15% of the Democrats would vote for the Democratic nominee if the nominee was Ayn Rand. That was a way of saying, if he threw his hat in the ring, he starts with a 30% handicap. Maybe he's underestimating it. But that's one, the hereditary voter. The second is the tactical voter. The tactical voter says, let's be realistic. We don't care about how bad the Democratic Party is in terms of our supporting it, as long as we know that the Republican Party is worse. That's the tactical vote. Be realistic. The tactical voter is one who spends three years moaning and groaning about the Democratic Party. They didn't roll back any of President Bush's legislation when they took over in 2007. Not one. Not even the disallowing Uncle Sam to negotiate for volume discounts with the drug companies when the Drug Benefit Act, a bonanza worth tens of billions of dollars to drug companies, was enacted. They didn't roll back anything. They keep funding the war. Their leader, a presumptive nominee, wants more soldiers in Afghanistan. He doesn't have an exit strategy. Uh, they don't do anything about strengthening the corporate criminal crime laws. Uh, John Conyers has a single-payer bill, uh, H.R. 676, 85 members of the House have signed on, but he can't get one Democratic senator to introduce it in the Senate. Not one. Not Obama, not Clinton, and not those two great new progressive senators, Bernie Sanders and, and Senator Brown, Sherrod Brown from Ohio. Those are the great hopes of the progressive wing. Now, why don't they introduce it? Senator Sanders, who's come out against impeachment vigorously, along with Senator Brown, it's exactly what Karl Rove wants us to do, is to initiate impeachment so he can turn the 26% of the people who support Bush against us, huh? Is that what he really means? I'm putting that word in his mouth. I mean, this is the lowest popular president in modern times, and Cheney's at 16%. It's almost happenstance, you know. You know, Harry Truman proposed universal health care, 1945, Senate to Congress, 1950. What are we talking about here? Isn't it about time that we join the community of nations? Taiwan has universal health care. Every Western country has universal health care. A country we give $4 billion a year to, Israel as universal health care. Maybe they should have a foreign aid program. Reverse it. Back to us. <laughs> now, what does it mean when you don't have health insurance? What it means is that 18,000 Americans die every year, according to the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences. That's six 9-11s every year. The Urban Institute just came out with an estimate, 22,000. That means hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people get sick, stay sick, don't have their injuries treated because they can't afford health insurance. Why doesn't that get us angry? Because the people who can do something about it, who can have their calls returned, have health insurance. How many people here do not have health insurance? That's pretty impressive. How many are under 25? See? That's what people out of school are now facing, trying to find affordable health insurance or health insurance of any kind, affordable housing, trying to deal with rapacious student loan companies like Sally May, 
with all their fine print and their gouging interest rates, wondering whether their jobs are gonna be outsourced abroad, because anything with software, architect, engineer, accounting, computer, all that can be outsourced. Law, a lot of law jobs now are starting to be outsourced. Even media jobs are starting to be outsourced. I'm still looking for CEO jobs to be outsourced. <laughs> I think there's some very good bilingual Chinese executives, a brilliant skill, who for 10% of the pay would take care, uh, had uh, General Motors and Exxon and Pfizer. Um, after all, they're outsourcing their own employees' jobs to keep up with the global competition. Well, let's start at the top. Huh? You're listening to presidential candidate Ralph Nader. Today's show, Nader Gonzalez, 2008. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, so the, the tactical voter is a complicit voter, wittingly or unwittingly. Because the moment you go, you're so terrified of the worst party, you go to the next worst party on a huge number of issues, not all, but a huge number of corporate power issues. Then you're saying to the least worst nominee, Obama, for example, that your vote can be taken for granted. Because you're so terrified of the Republicans that you will not make any demands on Obama in the area of women's rights and abolishing poverty and consumer protection and environment and tax changes and the wars and all the rest of it. And labor reforms and repeal of Taft-Hartley and so on. You won't make any demands. Don't, don't disturb them. I mean, this, they got to be elected. Let, they've got a strategy for election. They sure have. Mondale, Dukakis, Kerry, Gore, who won, but it was taken from him, but it was a lot closer than it should be. Uh, Clinton, who had Bob Dole as his opponent, who would campaign in Missouri and look at his watch and say, I think I got to go to the airport so we can get, get home, you know, in Washington, D.C. Uh, he really wasn't that serious. It is not a winning strategy, it's a losing strategy. Clinton, as Matt just said, benefited greatly from those 19 million uh, votes. Um, that's the tactical voter. Then there's a third class of voter. Third class of voter, it reflects what Eugene Debs once said. He said, better to vote for someone you believe in and lose than someone you don't believe in and win. What did he mean by that? He meant if you vote for someone you don't believe in and win, that someone is going to betray you. That someone is not going to look back on what your support was supposed to mean. And the Democrats have betrayed this country in ways that some chroniclers will fill many books in the coming future. Um, so the important thing here is to measure these parties by what the American people need, want, deserve, are entitled to. It's way overdue. That's the, those are the yardsticks. The Democrats could have stopped Bush on the war. They had the votes to block almost everything he did. You know, the Senate can, when you got over 40 seats, you can almost block anything. Ask the Republicans. They can block the Supreme Court nominees. They could have blocked the tax cut for the wealthy. They actually controlled the Senate. When Jeffords switched Senator Jeffords, they controlled the Senate and they still let the tax cut for the wealthy go through. The yardsticks are on our website, at least some of them, on the table 
for Nader Gonzalez uh, are the following. Single payer or full Medicare for all, cutting a half a trillion dollars of computerized billing fraud in Aetna and Cigna and insurance company uh, bureaucratic waste and giving you free choice of doctor and hospital. The second is cut the huge, bloated, wasteful military budget and put that money into building and rebuilding public works in our country. If you think there's waste in our military budget, you're nowhere close to what it really is like. It is the most colossal waste of taxpayer money in human history, both quantitatively and its brazen, brazenness. Um, there's almost no limit to what Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, Boeing, Grumman want. They also more weapons, more weapons. Doesn't matter, there's more, no more Soviet Union, more destroyers, more aircraft carriers, more Trident submarines. One Trident submarine with multiple nuclear warheads can destroy in 30 minutes 200 cities in the world. We have enough TNT to blow up the world 300 times and make the rubble bounce. The military budget is sacrosanct. McCain and Obama actually want to increase it, even though they know it's full of waste. They're afraid to attack any weapon system. Even Cheney wanted to get rid of the Osprey helicopter when he was Secretary of Defense. Couldn't do it. That's the extent to the military-industrial complex as a grip. And it's more the industrial complex. As I talk to people in the Pentagon all the time, and they don't like the Osprey. Uh, and they don't like the F-22, which went from $40 million a plane to $200 million per plane. They don't even know what the budget is anymore. The Government Accountability Office, the GAO, the arm of Congress, declares every year that the Pentagon budget, which is now $700 billion plus, it was $299 billion in 1999. Listen to this. The Pentagon budget has been declared unauditable. I mean, those of you who know anything about accounting and bookkeeping uh, might be forgiven to think that's a rather serious charge. Nine billion of the first dollars spent when we went into Iraq, they have no accounting for it. And every day there's something in the paper about a billion here, a billion there, they can't account for it, there are no receipts, you're supposed to feed the troops, KBR, a billion dollars, where's the accounting? As, as the old Senator Dirksen once said, a billion here and a billion there, pretty soon it adds up to real money. And it's your money. How many times do you hear ABC say that? Third, nuclear power is on the table for McCain and Obama. In fact, McCain wants 45 nuclear power plants, he said, which will create hundreds of thousands of jobs. I mean, there isn't a single nuclear power plant that can be built in this country without 100% government guarantee. Who says that? The nuclear industry. They can't get Wall Street financing for this costly technology without having you, the taxpayer, guarantee 100%, not 90%. We think solar energy and all its manifestations from solar, passive solar architecture to wind power, et cetera, et cetera, should be the number one energy mission of our country, including geothermal. We believe in opening up the presidential debates. What are we rationing debates for? We don't ration weather forecasts or entertainment or sports. Suddenly we're down to two or three debates that are parallel interviews in the fall between the two major parties. 
And the debate commission is a company. It's not an agency. It's a corporation created 21 years ago to get rid of the League of Women Voters sponsorship of presidential debates, who they thought were too uppity. And, and now they control it. They control the format, the frequency, the location, the corporate money to fund it, the hospitality suites at the debate locations, and the reporters who ask them the questions. And they make sure that no one else shares their stage. That's why European reporters laugh at us, Canadian reporters disbelieve. How can this world's greatest democracy have a system where if you come in second in the popular vote, you can become president? What's that? Support for the underdog? Takes it a little extreme. How can you have a system where the only way you can reach tens of millions of people is to be on those debates? Because the national TV networks make sure that only those debates are televised for 40, 50, 80, 90 million people to watch. In 2000, we campaigned all over the country in front of the largest arenas, Madison Square Garden, Target Center, Boston Garden, and we estimate we reached 2% of the people we could have reached on one of those debates. Our tax system is very, very important for national discussion. Here it is. First, we should tax what our society likes the least or dislikes the most before we tax human labor. That means we start with taxing minuscule tax on $500 trillion this year of securities derivatives transactions. We tax speculation. We should tax gambling more. We should tax the addictive industries more. We should tax pollution and polluters more. We should tax corporate criminals more. We want to reduce these events, tax them, before you tax workers. And as far as taxing workers, what kind of country is it that has a tax law that taxes capital gains one half of the rate that workers are taxed. If they make 80, 70, 80, 90,000 a year, they're over the 30% limit. The tax on capital gains is 15%. This is completely perverse. Now, will that be discussed? None of these issues are going to be discussed if we don't get more support, if the polls don't go up, if we don't get on certain debates or other sponsors propose certain debates, it's not going to happen. If you do not discuss these issues in the presidential year, whoever wins, you can be sure they're not going to do anything about it when they get into office because they won't have any mandate. They can easily ignore. So we didn't hear that you wanted a massive crackdown on corporate crime, fraud and abuse, looting pensions and savings and mutual funds and so on. Oh, we didn't hear anything about it. Huh? So that's one of our platforms. Are they talking, McCain and Obama, about the corporate crime wave that the mainstream press reports on every day? Wall Street Journal, Business Week, newspapers. It's all over. It's like an epidemic. And Enron to Wall Street, all the crooks and violating environmental laws and worker safety laws and bribing politicians and so on and so forth. Don't even talk about it because they're dialing for the same dollars from these corporate crooks. It's hard to bite the hand that feeds you. You may say, oh, well, that's unfair. Obama gets a huge amount of small money from ordinary people. He does, but one-third of his money is $1,000 or more. 50% of his money is $200 or more. 
And the small money doesn't come with strings attached, but the big money comes with strings attached, and he has raised more commercial interest money than John McCain as of June 30 of this year. We also, of course, want to impeach Bush and Cheney, as many of you do. That's off their table. We want to repeal the Taft-Hartley anti-union, anti-worker law of 1947, the worst, most notorious anti-worker law in the Western world. And that, it, that has weakened the trade union movement. And without a strong trade union movement, um, you don't get much countervailing power against these uh, corporations, especially the large ones. Uh, we would like to have one federal ballot access law, period, uh, for people running for federal office, Congress, White House. Did we have 50 different ballot access laws, hundreds of different county laws, who can petition, how many signatures, you know, the right color ballot in Massachusetts. Um, in Hawaii, they ran out of ballots in 2004, and we lost time and missed the deadline. You cannot believe the political bigotry in this country built in those state laws and in the minds of the two major parties against third party and independent candidates. And when that happens, that is a constitutional crime. Someday it will be adjudicated as a serious civil liberty, civil rights violation. But I'm glad to say that a little over two weeks ago, the Pennsylvania Attorney General indicted 12 Democrats in the legislature, two legislators and 10 legislative aides for using government time, government money, and government taxpayer bonuses uh, to get us off the ballot, among other things. And they're heading for jail in 2004. <laughs> Had we not been inside the electoral arena, that would not have happened. The only way you can challenge the ugliness, the bigotry against dissent in this country, Dissent is the mother of assent. You heard Matt talk about the 19th century. What if they stifled them? Do you know that in the 19th century it was massively easier to get on the ballot than it is today? They've learned how to close the doors on challengers, on competition. You're listening to presidential candidate Ralph Nader. Today's show, Nader Gonzalez, 2008. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Reversing policy in the Middle East. Now, there's a real taboo area, especially Israeli-Palestinian. That is a real taboo. Uh, when APAC calls McCain and Obama, listen, see? And, and they go to this APAC, and there are 10,000 people in this huge convention. And they basically have their words approved ahead of time. Uh, I mean, it is, the, you can, after a while, you read these speeches, absolute code words. Like, um, you got to say something about Jerusalem. Uh, total Israeli, not East Jerusalem. It's part of a Palestinian state. And of course, Obama said that. You got to say the special relationship between Israel and the U.S. government. What is that special relationship? That means you give military support economic aid to a booming economy, I might add, economic aid and diplomatic cover in the UN so that the Israeli militarist approach to brutalizing, occupying the Palestinian people, colonizing what's left of Palestine, continue against 
the two-state solution that's supported by a majority of Israelis and Palestinians, a majority of Jewish Americans, and a majority of Arab Americans. AIPAC does not represent uh, majority Jewish American opinion when it comes to resolving that conflict that is festering throughout a large part of Asia in many ways. Um, they uh, have built this wall, dividing peasants from their fields, separating students from schools, uh, and Obama goes to the Middle East. He never mentions the wall. He doesn't go to a refugee camp. He doesn't have a press conference with Abbas, the Palestinian leader in the West Bank, because he doesn't want to be asked questions where he might express some modest compassion for the two biggest open-air prisons in the world, the West Bank and Gaza, and the blockade of Gaza uh, from medicine and water and electricity and fuel and food. Fortunately, now there's a, uh, a ceasefire between Hamas and the Israeli uh, military or the Israeli government. But note this. Haaretz, the great Israeli newspaper, had a poll March 1st. 64% of the Israeli people want direct negotiations with Hamas. Obama and McCain won't even side with 64% of the Israeli people. Those of you who know the history know that Hamas was established with the support of the Israeli and U.S. government to counteract the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. So we have to reverse. We have to get out of Iraq in six months. Corp military and corporate withdrawal. Negotiate in the meantime the requisite autonomy that the three groups want under a unified Iraq. They do want a unified Iraq and have a humanitarian aid continue. And in the meantime, in the six months, have a UN-sponsored election because the earlier election was a garrison-type election. There weren't even names on some of the ballots. It was just clans. So those are some of the changes. And there are others. We believe... Uh, uh, in investor rights. We believe in people controlling uh, the commonwealth in this country. We should have intermediate institutions that control the public lands instead of giving away, as Matt said, the hard rock minerals and let the timber be cut down and the oil and gas be sold at bargain basement prices uh, to the oil companies with tax breaks to boot. Uh, we should have... Um, a return of some of the hours on our public airways. I mean, we're the landlords. We own the public airways. The radio and TV stations are the tenants. Uh, why don't we uh, have our own radio and TV stations and own networks right down local all the way to national? And how do we fund it? Simple. We charge these tenants rent. They use 24 hours. The public airways, our property, free ever since the 1927 Radio Act. I mean, what business would give away its property this way? People have got to control what they own. They own the public lands. They own the public areas. They own hundreds of billions of dollars of government research and development, which built the biotech industry, the containerization industry, a lot of the aerospace industry, a lot of the pharmaceutical industry, the semiconductor industry. That's all given free to these companies. Then they have the nerve not even to have a taxpayer appreciation day on April 15th, which I suggest to them regularly. Have a taxpayer appreciation day. Huh? Instead, they make, they make it like they did this research and development and put big ads in the paper like the pharmaceutical uh, companies. Taxol was developed with $31 million a year money by the National Cancer Institute. It's an anti-cancer drug. 
Under government policy, it's given away to a drug company under a monopoly marketing agreement with no price controls. And so a woman with ovarian cancer in year 2000 wrote me. She lost her job. She had a $19,000 a year job. And she said she went to a doctor. She had ovarian cancer. He said, it's serious. We have to prescribe Taxol. It's really the last drug. She said, how much? He said, six treatments, 14000 bucks." Bristol-Myers Squibb didn't discover that drug, didn't clinical test that drug, got it free. This is the way drug technology is transferred from your taxpayer pockets to the drug companies who then put it to you, pay or die. And um, also we think that we've got to highlight uh, more clearly what the people own in this country and make it more responsive than ever. Public libraries, public schools, municipally owned utilities. When we're gonna install solar energy in this country, why not do it through solar co-ops or municipally owned solar generating and distribution systems? If we don't wanna rely on the Bank of America and Citigroup and their speculative excesses and their plunging values and have to bail them out in Washington, then why don't we democratize credit and have credit unions all over, far more than we have now that are really democratically controlled especially developmental credit unions in poor areas in this country as part of a national program to abolish poverty. When Obama, I mean, Obama's African-American. I know a lot of people say, yes, a good thing, finally, African-American becomes president. What does that mean for African-Americans? Is this just a career change? You know, they say to me, oh, you're, you're really tough on Barack Obama. You say he talks white to the white corporate power structure. I said, is, is, there anything, is there anything strange about that? I mean, look at him. Is he taking them on? He said, why do you hold him to a different standard than McCain? I said, because he is African-American. He has to represent his people and Latinos and 100 million poor whites, poor Latinos, and poor African-Americans that make up a third of this country. That's why. We're not going to give him a free pass. I have too much experience with the Black Caucus, the very powerful African-Americans who run some of the major committees. After all these years of struggling for civil rights and African-American health and safety, asbestos, lead, the best maps on redlining we have in our office, uh, city after city, redlining Latinos, redlining uh, African-Americans, on and on for 40 years, and we say, you know, after work, you know, it would really be great if we had powerful African-American members in Congress or in the White House. That would take care of it. They've, most of them have turned their back. they got safe seats. They're never challenged in the primary unless they come out for Palestinian rights, like Cynthia McKinney. Yeah. Then they get challenged, you see. But most of the time, if they toe the line, it's fine. Well, the chairman of the powerful House Mays and Means Committees, Charles Rangel, African-American, John Conyers, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Intelligence Committee, Latino, Armas Reyes. I mean, what is it all for? Is this a career move? Or shouldn't it make a difference? We're saying, Nader Gonzalez saying, it's got to make a difference. Otherwise, you want to see cynicism. You want to see a, a withdrawal. You, can you imagine if it doesn't make a difference? The corporations are very clever. They will co-opt anybody regardless of race, color, creed, or sexual preference. 
That's how expedient and opportunistic. As long as people go along with their subjugation of civic values, democracy, health, safety, posterity, and subordinate these civic values to corporate commercial interests, like NAFTA, WTO. Let me just end on uh, this note. It comes down to, here in California, the uh, Peace and Freedom Party yesterday nominated Nader Gonzalez to be on their ticket. And that means we're, that means we're gonna be on the ballot. And the Peace and Freedom Party has other candidates for the state assembly and for the U.S. Congress, and the Green Party has candidates. And so do you know how strong those citizen groups will become in Washington, the ones you send $50 to, to help Sierra Club and ACLU Common Cause Public Citizen? How many people here have sent money to Public Citizen? They will become stronger the more votes that Nader Gonzalez get. We're going to be on... 45 ballots, and as I go around the country, I'm very really um, subjected to a high level of trusteeship. When people tell me who've given substantial contributions and are not rich, it just absolutely astonishes me with their sensitivity and their humanity. In 2004, we received a $4,000 contribution, which is the limit, from a man in Ohio, and I, just, I called him up to thank him. And I said, what do you do for work? I expect the person to say, well, I'm a lawyer, brokerage, (laughs) real estate agency head or whatever. He said, oh, uh, I'm a forklift operator in a food warehouse. I said, well, how how old are you? He said, I'm 32, and this is probably the only job I'll ever have. I said, how can you give $4,000 to Nader Camejo campaign? He said, very quietly, he said, it was just my way of protesting. What does that do to me? What would it do to you? I call up another contributor, Vietnam War veteran, 64 years old. He's coming, he's Agent Orange disease victim, the herbicide. And he sent $1,300. And I said, well, thank you very much for sending us your generous donation." He said, I'm not sending it to you. So I went like that. He said, I sent it to me. And my concern about where my country's going and where my children and grandchildren are heading. I said, shades of my father. So my father would always say when people were asked for charitable contributions in my hometown in Connecticut, you're not giving it to them. You're investing in your own community. So b- before... And our website, how many people have seen our website, votenader.org? Oh, you've got to see it. You know, it is something special. You really have to see it. How many have not seen it? Oh, you've got, I, you're like me. You like paper and, you know, newspapers. And, you know, I still use a typewriter. Uh, but you, you really should see it because it's, it's quite creative, vivid. Uh, it gives you a whole different take. And regardless of how you vote, and obviously I hope you vote for Nader Gonzalez, that you will uh, sign on the email list. So you'll see the the regular dispatches that show you how the major issues in our country, the major redirections, the major subject matter, 
the matters that affect the greatest number of people, the solutions that are available, the solutions that are available, I want to repeat that, the solutions that are available, practical ones to apply to the problems on the ground, whether it's in energy and housing and public transit and electoral reform and so on, you will see that all this is off the table. listening to Ralph Nader. Today's show has been Nader Gonzalez, 2008. In 1969, Ralph Nader helped found the Center for Study of Responsive Law, a nonprofit organization staffed mostly by college, graduate, and law students. Those students became known as Nader's Raiders and studied and issued reports on a variety of consumer issues. In his career as consumer advocate, Nader founded many organizations, including the Public Interest Research Group, the Center for Auto Safety, Public Citizen, Clean Water Action Project, the Disability Rights Center, the Pension Rights Center, the Project for Corporate Responsibility, and the Multinational Monitor, a unique monthly magazine that keeps tabs on corporate behavior internationally. Ralph Nader is author of Unsafe at Any Speed, among many other books. An Unreasonable Man, a documentary film about the life of Ralph Nader, is available on DVD. Visit the Nader Gonzalez campaign website at www.votenader.org. That's V-O-T-E-N-A-D-E-R dot O-R-G. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And a new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? 